chapter 6 and we go to chapter 7. Um, we've been telling you a little bit, chapter 6 has been full of uh, instructions. Uh, we've been telling you about the five crucial topics of life, rash pledges, laziness, perverseness, disruptiveness, and yes, adultery again. Uh, they were just telling me, when we have Facebook, uh, this goes live to Facebook and live to YouTube. And as it goes, it's going right now. As it goes to Facebook, here's what happens. Uh, so when we talk about a hot topic, we have thousands of people that watch it. When we talk about a hot topic, we can see a graph where the, where the people stop watching. And so uh, it's a, there's some tough topics. We're not going to avoid those. Uh, we have to talk about them, especially the way Scripture teaches us. So it almost uh, so we're talked about rash pledges, laziness, uh, perverts, and uh, sneaks, actually. It almost sounds like a Jerry Springer show. It's, prover it's problems with life. Well, maybe it tells us something about life. Like, the issues, these issues are the most challenging issues of life. So we ended last week with seven things that God hates. Do you remember that? We talked about uh, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to Him, haughty eyes, hands that shed innocent blood, a lying tongue, uh, feet that are quick to ru rush into evil, a heart that devises wicked schemes, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. That's a church item right there. A man who sends, stirs up dissension about, among brothers. So let's go to the last one mentioned. And by the way, that's in your news this week. A man who sh stirs up dissension among brothers. Anybody know where it is? It's hot all over it. Where is it? Joel Osteen. That's one of the things that God hates. Whether Joel Osteen's right or wrong, when, when you have Christians who stir up dissension, it's a wrong thing to do. And uh, I don't agree with Joe Osteen's uh, theology at all. I, don't, I would not follow him. That's my personal opinion. But I would not go against him and say something negative about, his, about what he does or he doesn't do or personally talk about him uh, perishing, which I've seen on, on, on the Internet. It's ridiculous. And it's by people who are Christians. That's one of the things God hates. So I have a... Uh, Joel Osteen, whether he's large or small, he's a peer of mine because he has the same position I have in the kingdom. So I can... The Bible says to discern among your brothers. I can talk about the theology that he has and I can talk about it and say if it's biblical or not. But as far as me judging him going to heaven or hell, that's not my position to do that. That is stirring up a dissension. If I try to tell anybody else about that, that's stirring up dissension. How many of you understand that? So that's one of the things God hates and so that's one of the reasons why we should never do that. So let's go on to the list, the last one mentioned in Proverbs chapter 6. And again, Solomon's going to be right back on it. He doesn't get off this uh, subject. Fluttering eyes, worthless bread, jealousy, rage, and vengeance. It seems that Solomon's telling us that sexual things are the things that really are the things that should concern us in life. And in fact, if you look at TV or if you look at anything, a lot of things are driven by sex. And so uh, he's, he's capitalizing on the fact that this is something that captures a lot of people and wrecks their lives. So what a mouthful that is. It's found in Proverbs 6, verses 23 to 35. It's a lengthy account uh, specifically pointed at the sin of adultery. Uh, look, regardless of spiritual issues, almost every social society have laws against adultery, whether, you're not, whether you believe it or not. Why? Because it kills the fabric of society. It breaks down that society. It will morally splinter and eventually crumble. Uh, ancient Rome didn't start out promiscuous, but its downfall came through its disregard for monogamous relationships, which led to moral decadence and its downfall. Roman women, I was going to take them to you today, but I didn't get to my office. I have a collection of first century rings from Roman women. They're actual rings, and they have little gems in them. Now, they look like they came from the first century. They're, they were found in, a, in many of the rooms. Archaeologists found a lot of the rooms. I have many of those. I probably have about 25 of them. How, why do I have so many rings from women, Roman women? Because when a Roman woman would get a divorce, she'd celebrate by getting a ring. 
And so the more rings they had on their hands, the more divorces. Now we know that uh, that's a tragedy. We know divorce is a tragedy, but they did it purposely. It was something passed down from the men. And so it was not something that because of, of issues that came up, it was something that was a norm of life. Adultery was a norm of life that was there. Uh, these charts may surprise you, so let me give them to you. This is uh, the, the French and extramarital affairs. France uh, it has 47. It says the uh, percentage saying that married people have an affair is morally unacceptable. France says it's morally unacceptable, 47%. Palestinian territories say it's 94% unac unacceptable, although they have four wives, and the fourth one they change out. All right, Turkey, look at all the, all the Muslim ones. So where does the United States fall? United States is right here. It says that 84% uh, of Americans believe that having an extramarital affair is, is, is not right. That sounds amazing to me uh, because then I see these statistics. These are adultery laws as of 1996. The states in light blue have the strongest adultery laws. Alabama is in dark blue. It has also strong adultery laws. I, I'm sorry for the blurriness of it. I couldn't get it any better than that from the internet. Uh, the dark blue, the gray ones have no adultery laws in the books. So look at California, look at Pennsylvania, and so they have no adultery laws. So there are still laws in the books in Alabama that if you have adultery, it's, it's finable and imprisonable, believe it or not, uh, even though that's not enforced. Uh, it, is, it is still there. So that's in 1996. And wh what about America right now? What about uh, what about American, uh, what's happened since then? Well, obviously we've changed because these are now the law, the states that have adultery laws on the books and very few of them, anti-adultery laws I should say, and very few of them enforce them. So it used to be that every state would have them. Uh, nine, before 1990, in the 1950s, every state in the United States had anti-adultery laws. Uh, then we saw in the 1990s, we started seeing some of the western states disband them. And now we see a lot of states disbanding them. It's my guess, if it continues in progression, that you'll have every single state disbanding them. Why? Because they don't enforce them. Now, why would you have anti-adultery laws in a country anyway? Why would you have them anywhere? Anybody? Because adultery ruins the fabric of society. It ruins that... that, that uh, one man, one woman relationship. And obviously, we're way past that today in America because now we have men and men and women and women. So uh, you could just see this. So no wonder American society is fragmenting. Solomon lists as one of the five crucial social issues of life. That's why he hits it so hard. He says it's a social issue. You have to learn about, about, about uh, marriage. You've got to learn that infidelity is something that will destroy everything, including yourself. So it's not so amazing that the last social responsibility Solomon talks about in Proverbs 6 has to do with this very social fabric of life, infidelity or adultery. And we know from way back that adultery leads to disaster. And uh, believe it or not, there is an, uh, an ancient story, probably factual, dating back to 1290 BC that we all know, that illustrates the end result of adultery. Now when we read this story, we don't think about adultery, but the whole idea is the story revolves around what adultery does to people and to, and to nations. How many ever heard of this? What is that? Trojan horse. This is the story. Let me give you a little history on this story, okay? On the Trojan horse. So I'll give you a little history. So, war over one woman. That's what this war was about. The date was the 13th century BC. By the way, if you're going to Greece with us, you will be at Agamemnon's castle uh, where, this, where part of this was. So we'll tell you about that in a moment. So it's 13th century BC. Documented Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey and Virgil's Aeneid. 
Opponents, Greek cities of Troy and Sparta. You'll be in those cities. Uh, we see this. The reason, Helen of Troy. The history, Paris, who's the son of Trojan king, uh, ran off with uh, Helen, wife of King Menelaus of Sparta. King Menelaus' brother, King Agamemnon, uh, led a Greek expedition against Troy. So he went to get his, his woman back, his wife back. She was, called, she was supposed to be the most beautiful woman of the time. So he had his whole army go back after this woman who committed adultery with Paris. So they took their whole army, their whole fleet, their whole naval fleet, and they sailed to Troy to get one woman back. Uh, now, a lot of people know this story, but they don't understand the full impl implementation of it. The Greeks pretended to withdraw, defeated from the shores of Troy, leaving a gift of surrender, a large wooden horse. They actually had their fleet on nearby island of Tenidos. Uh, the uh, Sinon, a Greek spy living in Troy, convinced the Trojans to take horse into the city as an offering to Athena. And if they did, they would never be defeated in battle ever again. Despite the prophetess's warnings from Lacoon and Cassandra not to do so, they took the horse into the city. That night, while Trojans celebrated their victory, Greek army soldiers hidden inside the horse came out and opened the city gates to their, com uh, to their comrades uh, or commanders who had returned from the Tenedos undetected. Homer's moral of the story, you never know what's in a gift from your enemy. Proverbs chapter 6 and Pastor Carell's moral of the story, stay away from other men's wives. <laughs> That's what it's all about. Is that not what it's all about? That's really what it's all about, is it not? And so we see that. By the way, there's a lot of comics. I thought I'd give you a couple when I was researching this. Uh, we talked about Trojan horse, Islam being a Trojan horse in the West. Listen, look at this one. May I suggest we carefully screen this thing? That's, uh, that's talking about something coming into your city. Uh, we have a lot of things that we've allowed in our country and our city. And this one's an interesting one. ISIS hiding in a Trojan horse coming in. So we see that it's used quite a bit. So let's pick it up in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 23 and show you what it's actually saying. It says, For the commandment is a lamp, and the law of light, and reproofs of instruction are of the way of life, to keep thee from the evil woman, from the flattery of the tongue of a strange woman. Notice he centers it on the women. Lust not after her beauty in thine heart, neither let her take thee with her eyelids. Flirting. For by means of a whorish woman, a man is brought to a piece of bread, and the adulteress will hunt for the precious life. Really strong, strong words. Uh, actually, he's talking about marriage and family, too. Adultery is a brainless act, soul-destroying and self-destructive. For sound device is a beacon. Good teaching is a light. This is from the message. Moral discipline is a life path. They'll protect you from wanton women, from the seductive talk of some temptress. Notice it says that sound advice and teaching and moral disciplines will protect you from a wanton woman. Don't lustfully fantasize on her beauty, nor be taken in by her bedroom eyes. You can buy an hour with a whore, it says. This is the translation for a loaf of bread. But a wanton woman will well eat you alive. That's some pretty tough language when you see it from Scripture. Um, if you continue to see some of these things that are going on, it talks about this. Proverbs, can a man scoop the fire into his lap? This is Proverbs 6, 27 continues. Can the man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals? Talking about this woman. Without his feet being scorched. So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. Uh, he is really laying it down the line. And then he finally says this. In, uh, well, actually, not finally, but he says this also. People do not despise a thief if he seals to satisfy himself when he's starving. He's talking about two sins here, thievery and adultery. He says that people won't despise a thief if he steals to, to satisfy himself because he's starving. Yet when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. So he has to make recompense. For he may have to give up all the substance of his house. And then he goes on and says this to counter it. But, as opposed to the thief, whoso commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. 
He that does it destroys his own soul. A wound and dishonor shall he get, and his reproach shall not be wiped away. For jealousy is the rage of a man. Therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. I'll explain that. He will not regard any ransom, neither will he rest content, though he may give it, though thou givest many gifts. So the conclusion of the verses is this. There is no stopping the jealousy of a wounded man. It will lead to rage. How many remember O.J. Simpson and Nicole Brown and Ronald Goldman? That's a perfect example of this. That murder came from a rage, from a rage uh, of, of O.J. believing that his wife was being in, had in, infidelity. Uh, this uh, last point uh, points us to a specific... No specific illustration. Your mind, like mine, has conjured probably up some do dozens of memories of talented, dedicated, charming persons who have committed emotional suicide and revoked their own credentials as Christian leaders. We've seen it happen to Christian leaders by seeking gratif gratification with persons who are off limits. If Henry Kissinger's maxim is correct, power is the ultimate aphrodisiac, then leaders face a special responsibility to curb their lusts. If this were true in Israel's uh, budding bureaucrats in Proverbs, whose opportunity to be alone with married women were carefully delineated and delimited by the social mores, how much more does it apply to spiritual leaders today? Much of whose ministry is one-on-one -on -one with persons who hang on their, very, on their very word. When Proverbs being written for our times, it would, be alert, it would alert us to the dangers of transference and counter-transference, where authority figures and eager followers, like a counselor or counselee, entertain legitimate feelings for and expectations of each other. It's extremely important. I was a pastor for a long time, still a pastor, and I remember when I'd have to counsel people, and I remember, I remember the wisdom that Cheryl would give me way back when. If it was a woman, she'd say, make sure that door's open. You, know, make, you make sure that your door stays open, and I always did. Uh, you, I would never go to lunch with a woman by myself, ever. It was just a no-no, because I'm a married man. It's, they have no reason to do that. And so there's certain things you do that have to, be, that have to make you, protect you from things. What starts as an arm's length face-to-face relationship, what Solomon's saying, tragically ends all too often as an intimate embrace, more destructive to birth parties than an outraged mother could bear, could inflict on a dog that trampled, uh, tampered with her cubs. So we're talking about something that's very fierce. We're going to go back to that, not tonight, but he's going to go back to that again, maybe another night when all those seniors are there from the age home. <laughs> God has a sense of humor, I'll tell you. So, how does... Solomon give wisdom to remedy this problem of adultery? Well, he does it by giving us a lengthy, detailed proverb that, on how to spot this type of woman. And by the time we get to chapter 7, uh, we will see that. So let me just give you a couple things. People do not despise a thief, let me re repeat it, if he steals to satisfy himself when he's starving. When he's found yet, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all the substance of his house. Sometimes the sin may seem fair or justified sin. A lot of times people will talk about that, uh, that you, situation ethics. Situation ethics says, well, you know, if I'm starving to death, can I steal? Well, nevertheless, our motivation can never justify a transgression of the law of God. A sin, one sin leads to another sin. If we justify a small robbery, we may finally justify a bigger one, or lying or committing adultery. That's why Solomon wrote about adultery again in Proverbs 6, 32 to 35. If a person who steals to satisfy his hunger should be punished, then the person who steals somebody's self-respect will be punished even more. He is causing an irreparable moral damage. And so it's talking about something that's pretty powerful. Uh, so what do you do? Well, you identify the problem. Here's to recognize the sins that strain and destroy marriages. Now, we may, some of you and some of us, or maybe all of us, may not need this. But let me remind you that there are people listening to this that may stop listening because of this. Or maybe they have some trouble right now and they need to listen to this. Not only on YouTube, but also on Facebook. Thousands of people. So this is a preaching and a teaching that needs to go all over the church. Only we don't get it in church, and uh, that's unfortunate. We need to get it, because if you can stop someone and help their life, then come on, that's what we should be doing. Is that right? Yes. 
Somebody say amen. This is not judgmental. This is not saying we judge anyone. This is saying what the Word says. It goes on and says, uh, recognize the sins that strain and destroy marriages. If you have a problem in your marriages, I promise you it's either one of these four things. Pride. Nobody, no one's th nobody wants to say they're sorry. Nobody wants to say, nobody wants to say that they're, they're wrong. I remember when Cheryl and I were first married, and sometimes I have to be very personal with this. Uh, Cheryl and I were very young, and uh, usually when you're really young, you're not really smart. I don't want to say the word stupid, but I guess I just did. So when you get young, you don't really know a whole lot. Come on, somebody say amen. So we married when we were very young. And, um, you know, we were two different people, two different characteristics, two different, two different uh, personalities. And I remember that Cheryl could, and she could easily back this up. She's not that way now. But I remember when Cheryl would get mad, she could stay mad for a couple days. When I get mad, I get over it. I usually start joking right after I get mad. I'm just done with it. You know? Well, I remember sometimes having some arguments. Like, how many of you ever had an argument with your wife or your husband? Okay, those liars, put your other hands up. Okay, so basically, I remember, and what I would do, and she can attest to this, I would always say, I would always go to her quickly after the argument, and sometimes if they're heated, and I'd say, I'm sorry. And she would say to me something like this, you're sorry for what you said? I said, no, I'm not sorry for what I said, I'm just sorry it got out of hand. And I would joke with her. Now, you know, years and years and years uh, ago, that was something we had to do. Now it's become something where our pride never got in the way. We can talk to each other. Pride is a killer in relationship. It's a killer in a marriage. Selfishness. I think of Cheryl more than I think of myself. Can I give you another illustration? I don't want to give all these illustrations, but when I, we first got married, I had one of the most beautiful Harley choppers you could ever imagine. I mean, before I was saved, I stole much, much of that bike, and I put it together. I mean, I, I worked hard stealing parts for that bike. I want you to know that. It was beautiful. It was all chrome, 22 inches front, extended front end, and I loved riding Harleys. I, was, I did it since I was 12. And so when we got married, I knew we needed some furniture. We didn't have a whole lot, so we needed a, we needed a kitchen set. So I sold out any, without saying anything, I sold my bike, which I really kind of, I mean, I don't want to use the word love, but I probably love that bike. So I sold it. Wasn't going to ride anymore. I couldn't afford another one. And I bought our kitchen set. And I remember Cheryl looking at me and just like thinking, man, I can't believe you did. Now, every day I woke up and I'd go to that kitchen, I would look at those chairs and see my handlebars. I would see my wheels. <laughs> I can't say it didn't bother me. I got, I got over it for about four years, and then five years, I guess, and I saw Harley going down the road, and I was, uh, we were driving in the car, and we were making a little bit more money then, and I saw Harley, and I just looked at it, and Cheryl saw me look at it, and she said, you need to get a Harley. And I said, what? She said, you need to get a Harley. She bought me a Harley. I remember when she bought me a Harley. Let me tell you something. That's because, whether I knew it or not, I was being selfless. I wasn't selfish. If I said, I want this, I would never have gotten that. And so selfishness many times defeats uh, a marriage. Dishonesty is the worst thing you can have in a marriage. If you lie to someone, you ruin all the trust. And basically, marriage is built on trust. And infidelity, that's what Paul's talking, uh, excuse me, that's what the Hebrews Paul talks about, and that's what Solomon's talking about. So these are the four time bombs that will kill a marriage. You get two of those, your marriage is done. You get one of them, it's hard to get over it. Can you get over it? Of course you can. But this is something that nobody teaches, and they, we really need to teach it. Come on, somebody say amen to that. So, we're back at wisdom's feet, and reoccurring re warning pops up, and is again strongly emphasized by the wise teacher of wisdom. So, Proverbs 7, I talked about it as being, rely on wisdom in times of temptation. So, we don't have to just talk about adultery, let's talk about temptation, because that's what he's going to talk about. Uh, in, in Proverbs chapter 7, verses 1 to 5, it says, My son, keep my words and store up my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and you'll live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tab tablets of your heart. Say to wisdom, you're my sister. And to insight, you are my relative. 
They will keep you from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman, with her seductive words. So he's concentrated on the women, but it's also about temptation. The word lay up there means hide them as a treasure in your heart. Keep them as the apple of your eye. We'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, temptation hits every single one of us. Uh, temptation hit Christ. Uh, we know that Jesus was tempted. The Bible says in every area, like we were tempted, which means if you were ever tempted with, uh, with, uh, with lusting after someone, the temptation, not doing it, the temptation, it means that Jesus faced that also. And so that's a hard concept for us to understand, that Jesus was tempted in every area, but he never sinned. He ne temptation is not a sin. Acting out the temptation is a sin. Uh, even Jesus was tempted. We know that. Uh, let me show you how Jesus was tempted. We see in Mark 1.13, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered unto him. We see this in uh, Luke 4. And 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. That sounds like something we should just remember from Sunday school, but these are real temptations. This is something where it would never have been a temptation if it wasn't that Jesus wanted to turn those stones into bread. He wanted to turn those stones into bread. He wanted to avoid the cross when, the, when, all, the, when all of the uh, kingdoms of the world were shown to him. He wanted to avoid the cross. And, the, and we know that if he would bowed down to Satan at that time, he would have avoided the cross. And Jesus would be ruling on planet Earth. Satan would have, would have won, but Jesus would have been ruling without going through the cross. Real temptations. These were temptations just like we have. And so uh, we understand that he was tempted. Uh, let me ask a question. You can raise your hands if you want. Has Satan ever tempted you? Good. Everybody raised their hand. That means you're all awake and honest. So look at Luke chapter 10. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test, that word in the Greek is tempted, to tempt Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Uh, he replied, how do you read it? So they're trying to tempt Jesus. Then all the Pharisees did were try to tempt him. They would try to, ch to test him. They would try to get him to a spot where he can incriminate himself. Uh, I should ask the question, has a lawyer ever tempted you? I overheard one guy tell another one out of the store on, uh, the other day, I can't take my lawyer anymore, so I'm thinking of changing lawyers. What do you think? Uh, his friend, without pausing, said, changing lawyers is like moving to a different chair on the deck of the Titanic. And so, you know, there's a lot of temptations we have in life. Uh, lots of people are tempted. Believe it or not, we can actually tempt Christ, even ourselves, right now. And so, uh, we know the Israelites were complaining and murmuring about God. And they were murmuring about Moses and their present lot in, in life. And so we know that God allowed these snakes, they're called three-steppers in, in uh, the Sinai Desert, to come and bite them. You can go in Numbers chapter, uh, chapter 25 and find this out. So the murmuring, complaining Israelites were being bitten by these snakes. They started on the outside of the camp. And basically what the people did is they started to repent. And they cried unto Moses. And God commanded Moses to make a stick. And on that stick to put a serpent. How many of you have blue cross and blue shield? You'll see that. That's the serpent, that, that coiled serpent. It's called, it was called Nehushtan. And so anybody who looked on the stick with the serpent lived. Now, what does that mean? Somebody asked one of the questions in Facebook Live, uh, do we believe in the Old Testament as Christians? Of course we do. That's a shadow and type of Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us. If you look, if you're sinning and you look on the tree where sin was crucified, you're freed from it. That's a shadow and type of Christ in the Old Testament in Numbers. So... The temptation was they were murmuring. Every time you hear the word murmur in Scripture, it's a negative connotation. They were murmuring, and God had enough of it. Uh, there were times when God said to Moses, aren't you glad you live in the New Testament in grace? He said, stand aside, I'm killing all of them. Um, that's what he said. God said in the Old Testament, and Moses pleaded for him. God knew he wasn't going to do that, but he wanted to see who would stand in the gap for them. So we can actually tempt Christ. 1 Corinthians. 
Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Talking about Nehushtan. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed by the destroyer. That's exactly what I just showed you, Numbers chapter 5. Now all these things happened to them for examples, and they're written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. So Paul's talking to the Corinthians, who obviously were murmurers and complainers. <laughs> and Paul says, you better straighten up. And he's talking to saints, he's talking to church. You better straighten up. All you do is complain and murmur. Don't you remember what happened in, in Numbers? And let me tell you something, it's pretty amazing to me. He says, you're tempting Christ by doing that. So let's take it apart. Let's go on down. He says, verse 1, he says, My son, keep my words and treasure my commands within you. Within you, he says. So uh, to keep God's word inside us tells us that, uh, why? Because temptations will come our way. And you have to have the word to fight temptations. When, when Jesus was tempted to the devil three times, you know what Jesus did? Three times he quoted scripture. Three times. So if you have the word inside you, you can fight temptation. That may seem simple, but so many people are tempted today, and if you don't combat that with the word of God, you may succumb to your temptations. Uh, when uh, Intel first started making computer chips uh, for PCs, they had, a, they had a, a sign put on every PC, and there was a label on the case, and it said, how many remembers it? It used to say, Intel inside. That's what it said. Uh, to, I think we should make some t-shirts. And I think we should have Proverbs 7 and 1 and say, God's word inside. Because that's what we're supposed to have, God's word inside of us. Okay, here it is again. The strange woman, the seductress, and the flatterer with her words. This is what it says. Keep my commandments and live, my law and the apple of your eye. Bind them upon your fingers, write them upon the table of your heart. Say unto wisdom, you are my sister. I'm reading it again. Call understanding your kinswoman, that they may keep thee from the strange woman, from the stranger which flatters with her words. So, it's the Adam and Eve scenario. Now I'm going to, send, I'm going to take a little sidestep and show you something of why Proverbs is saying this. We know that Adam tempted Eve. Excuse me, Eve tempted Adam. We know that Adam was not beguiled by the serpent, Timothy says. That means the serpent went to him and he didn't get him to fall. Eve fell. Uh, has God truly said. Now we always say that it's Adam and Eve and the apple. It's no such thing. We don't know it's an apple. The Bible tells us it was a fruit. Uh, why do they say apple? Well, you're going to learn something tonight that probably most people don't know. The reason why they say apple is the same reason why Solomon talks about keeping the word as the apple of your eye. That's a very interesting reason. It wasn't an apple uh, that, that Eve tempted. It was a fruit. Uh, but we see the word apple many, many times. Notice verse 2 in, in what Solomon says. Keep the law as the apple of your eye. And what it means is be intimate with me and my words. The apple of your eye is what appears in your eye every time you look at something. When I look at someone, or they look at me, I get this little, this little shine in my side of my eye, and if you look real close, you can see your reflection in it. Now, I'm going to only ask husbands and wives to do that, but just bend over, lean over to each other, and look straight into the pupil of your wife's eye and your husband's eye, and tell me what you see. Get close. What do you see? Do you see yourself? Do you see yourself? I know, you need glasses. You can't see that close. How many of you saw yourself in the other person's eye? So you saw yourself in their eye. So if you, whatever you look at, you, anything you look at, you're going to see a reflection in your eye. Let me give you an example. This woman is looking outside a window, and outside that window is some mountains. That's the apple of her eye right there. This woman is looking through a home with two columns. See the columns? She's looking out the out a, uh, side of a house. It has two columns. That's the apple of your eye. He says, keep my word as the apple of your eye. 
That would be great, wouldn't it? So, Proverbs is just talking about the apple. Now watch. So, you get close to someone and you'll see yourself in their eye, in the apple of their eye. Uh, God wants us to see himself in our eyes. That's why I showed you that picture of Jesus. He wants to see us through his word. That, by the way, is a scroll in that apple. That is a Torah. That's right. So that's what Solomon's saying. He says, you should have the Torah in your eye. Now, what, why? Because your eye gate is the thing that would cause you to lust after some woman. And so he's giving you a, a, he's giving you a counterbalance for that. He says, if you, have the, if you have the word in your eye, in your heart, uh, and it's, a, it's a, a synonym for your heart. If you have the word in your eye, if you're thinking about the word, then you're not going to get to that deception. Uh, he gives us a little bit more. He says this. He says, immorality is deceptive. It's more apparent to others than to ourselves, and it blocks the flow of common sense. He tells that in Proverbs chapter 7. And let me show it to you. For at the, widow of my, at the window of my house, I looked through my casement, and behold, among the simple ones... I discerned among the youth, among men, young men void of understanding. Remember I told you Solomon's writing to several different people. A simple man, a learned man, a, a, an aged man. He says, this is about a simple one. I discerned among the youth, a young man void of understanding, passing through the street near her, corn, her corner, and he went to the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. He's talking about an illicit affair, is what he's talking about. And so he's telling us about this. The KJV says it this way or the uh, NASB says, that at the window of my house, I looked out through my lattice and I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing through the street near her corner, and he takes the way to her house in the twilight and the evening, in the middle of the night and in the darkness. Let me give you one more translation. No, that's the translation I wanted to give you. So, what do we see? I, could give you, I can give you sight after sight of statistics, but we get, we, uh, get callous to the statistics. Let me show you it. The internet is a powerful tool that has a tremendous benefit to society and mankind. We're going on the internet right now. The information highway is amazing. It's helpful. It's fast. And it's very beneficial. But it's equally dark. It's equally deceptive. And uh, it, uh, beside those few facts, let me give you a couple from the internet just to tell you what I'm talking about. Average monthly unique visitors to adult websites in the millions. In 2001, 18.7 million. 2008, almost 75 million people. Let me give you a little bit more. And this is going to kind of shock you a little bit. Pornographic web pages by country. The United States has the most pornographic web pages. 89% of the web pages are centered in the United States. If I wanted to show you some more statistics, and these are from 2004, by the way. They're way past this now. 1,000 new pornographic sites added to the internet every single day. 75% of all movie searches on the internet is for pornographic movies. Uh, in September 2004, children aged 10 to 14 spend 64.9% more time on porno sites than they did on internet game sites. I like the fact that kids can use the internet. I don't like the fact that they can use it also. We've got to be very careful with kids that are young. In September 2004, over a quarter, 27.5% of children 17 years and younger visit an adult website, which represents 3 million unique underage visitors. Of these, above 21.2% were 14 years old or younger. 40.2% were female. Pornography movie business is 20 times larger in movie sales than all of Hollywood's movies combined annual rental and sales of porno movies. Four billion with over 11,000 new movies produced every single year. Is this underage, overproduced, pornographic deluge a new problem for the young? Proverbs 7.1, my son, keep my words, lay up my commandments within thee. 7.5, that they may keep thee from the strange woman, from the stranger which flatters with her words. Now why would that happen? Because Satan hates us. 
And let me tell you something. Satan had intimacy with Christ. He had intimacy with God, God the Father. He was the anointed chair of the covered. And so basically he understands one of those problems of mankind is that, is that desire for intimacy. And so he warps it. Anything that's pure, he warps. Uh, it's a matter of eyes and apples is what it is, if I could put it that way. What you focus on and what you fix your gaze on. Whatever you focus on and fix your gaze on is what you're going to follow. And let me show you what Matthew 5.28 says. Jesus said this, pretty tough. You've heard in your, it was said of those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Listen to what Jesus says. But I say unto you that whosoever looks at a woman to lust after her, after her has already committed adultery in, with her in his heart. That's tough statements. I didn't say that. Jesus said that. And let me tell you something. People won't quote that. They'll stay a million miles away from that. What was Jesus saying? He was saying this. He's saying that if you look, well, let me tell you. He's saying, the word look there is the Greek word optomahi. We get our word optometrist from it. It means to gaze with your eyes wide open. To place an image on the eye, apple of the eye. Intense vision. Not a casual glance, but rather a focused, image-producing stare. He says if someone does that, you're obviously focusing on that person too much and you're focusing something on it. Uh, you know, sometimes when people do things in, that's... Uh, that's over the top, you can kind of notice it. I had, there was a lady that called Cheryl the other day. She wanted to talk to her about someone and uh, wanted to give some information. And she ended up talking to her for an hour and a half. I never heard the conversation. I never, Cheryl got off the phone. She didn't say anything. I said, stay away from that lady. She said, why? I said, anybody that doesn't know you that talks to you for an hour and a half has a problem. <laughs> Do they not? Do they not? If it was a friend, I can understand talking for an hour and a half. But if you want to tell me some information, and you need, you need to take an hour and a half, and she says, how did you know that? And I says, I'm telling you, she probably went all around everything with you and told you things that made you uncomfortable. She says, she did. So because any, if somebody's focusing, this is what Jesus is saying, if you're looking at that woman and you're just focusing on them and your eyes are wide open and she becomes the apple of your eye, you have lust in your heart. It's pretty powerful. I'm going to get it. How many of you get it? He's talking about it. Listen, uh, what the teacher of wisdom is saying is that, now watch, Immorality is an illusion. Uh, really get this, especially if you're at home. Listen to it, because it's deeper than you think. It's a head game. Immorality is always a head game first that tricks your mind and emotions through your eye gate. Your eye gate will trick you. How do I know that? Well, I could sell you a purse for $3,000 because I put it all over TV, and your eye sees it, and you see other people using it, and you think you need one. It's your You're blank at me tonight. How many understand it's your eye that first appeals to your head? It's your eye gate. So a head game, it first tricks your mind and emotions. It does this. You focus and that apple of your eye becomes a woman. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery. Anyone who looks at a woman with eyes wide open, focused, she becomes the apple of her eye. They can't take their eyes. They're committing lust, is what Jesus says. It's only a matter of time. And that's what Jesus was saying also. It's nothing new. It's one of the largest deceptions of the enemy. If someone is listening out there in, in a YouTube or Facebook, and you have this problem. Statistics say uh, that many, of, uh, many people do. Here's some help. Pornography. Don't view it. Just don't do it. Repent if you have. If you're addicted, first of all, pray. Seek the prayers of others. You need to, be, you need to confess it to someone. Think about the consequences. Focus on better things. Avoid the triggers. There's triggers to that. And don't give the devil an opportunity. All scripture verses. So, what am I talking about tonight? Well, look, though Psalm is talking about sexual sin and immoral, immoral women and simple men, you don't have to be facing those types of temptations in order to have a battle raging in your mind right now. Matter of fact, our mind is our battleground. The mind is the battlefield. You have to win that battle every day. Every single day, your mind, whether it's worries, let's get away from sexual things, thankfully, for a second. 
Whether it's worries, doubts, depression, misgivings, anxiety, frustration, or fear, it all starts in your mind. Come on, somebody say amen. It's always in your mind. So what does that mean? Well, many times it's what we allow the devil to place in our minds that vexes us the most. So tonight, I want to leave you with some teaching on your mind, your greatest battlefield. Proverbs 7 ties into it. Listen to what it says, and it ties into 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. And why is your mind a battlefield? It is not things in themselves which trouble us, but our opinions of things. Epictetus, a long time ago, quoted that. So, let me show you. It is not the things in themselves that trouble us, but our opinions of things. Change your thoughts, and you change your world. I do not react to some absolute reality, but to my perception of the reality. It is this perception which for me is reality. What does that mean? It means truth means nothing to people, many times. It's your idea of what truth is. Somebody can tell you something, but if you still believe something opposite, that's your idea of truth. How many of you get it? So your mind is your battlefield. Uh, let, me, let me just give you a couple more. The mind. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 tells us. We know that. Why is your mind the main battlefield? Because we're fighting an enemy who's already defeated. So his main tactic is to try to use us against our own selves. Listen, people blame the enemy a lot for a lot of things, but the enemy can't force you to do anything. He can't force it. You can't, you know, who is it? Flip Wilson, a long time ago, he said the devil made me do it. The devil can't make you do anything. Any more than any angel. The devil's a fallen angel. No, no angel can make you do good. No devil can make you. It's, it's yourself. It's your mind. It says he tries to manipulate our minds and our emotions in order to manipulate our actions. And that's exactly what he does. Problems always start in the mind. That's what Jesus was saying. He says you're letting it in your eye. It's affecting your mind. And that's why you're going to do that. Because you're allowing it to get into your mind. How many are with me tonight? So, spiritual warfare is what it is. What are you doing right now to make sure the devil can't find access to your mind and emotions again? What about depression? What about anxiety? What about those things? Well, and I'm not... I'm not saying you shouldn't do this, I just, don't judge me for doing this, but a lot of people Im immediately will run for pills. You know, we're a pill-popping society. We have a problem mentally, we go for a pill. Well, Solomon had no pills available to him. There were no pharmacies back in Jerusalem. There were no, there were no pharmacies anywhere. He couldn't call up a doctor. He couldn't go to dock in a box. He couldn't do a thing. So what did he have to do? He had to rely on the things that you and I, uh, sometimes the, and our, our generations forget. It's the Word of God. What practical steps are you taking to make sure that you won't fall into that same trap the next time? What if it's depression? Depression covers our land. The Bible says in Isaiah in the last days that uh, darkness will cover the people and great darkness the land. The word darkness in the Hebrew is depression. Depression will cover the people and depression will cover the land. The largest amount of suicide uh, we've ever faced in America we're facing right now. So we're watching this happen. Why? Because we're not teaching the Bible. We're not teaching the Word of God. If we understand the Word of God and take it to our heart instead of it just being a Sunday thing, then maybe we'd understand that we can get out of all of our problems. Somebody say amen. Alright, so let me go a little further. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound. That's the key. Right there is the key. Your mind has to be sound. If you're letting things into your mind that are not sound, it's going to affect you. It'll affect your health. It'll affect your emotions. It'll affect your attitude. All the way down the line. Spiritual word. What is a sound mind? Sound mind is the word uh, sophrino, sophrono, sophronio, excuse me, uh, in Greek. A sound mind, sensible thinking. A compound of the word sozo which means saved, a saved mind, healed, delivered. And the word phronio, which alludes to intelligent or sound thinking, when combined, the new word means to have a saved mind. 
Your mind has to be a saved man. What's a saved mind? All things work together for good to those who are called to the Lord. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Uh, I, I know the destiny that I have designed for you to give you peace and an expected end. That's a saved mind. A saved mind doesn't say, oh, I'm never going to get out of this. Oh, this isn't going to work for me. Oh, I can't believe I have this problem. That's not a saved mind. A saved mind says, I'm going to believe Scripture and I'm going to tell myself Scripture, even if you don't feel like it. How many are with me? Golly, I have to keep asking that, don't I? Maybe I'm insecure. Here you go. The enemy is not after your money. He's not after your stuff. He wants your mind, your attitude, your heart, your faith, your peace. Understand that you're not being attacked over the tangible things in your life. The enemy is fighting you over the things you can't see. I gave this illustration last Thursday. I wasn't sure if I gave it, to this, gave it this time here when I, when I was stuck in, in, um, in the airport in, um, where was I last night? That's where I was, Arkansas. When I was in Van Buren, Arkansas, and I was stuck in the airport, and they had a, and they kept, they kept delaying the flight, not from eight, six thirty in the morning till eight o'clock at night, and then they had, a, they had to truck me up, uh, two hours to uh, Fayetteville to fly me out. Of course, I got to see the eclipse and everything. But when they were doing all that, um, my the pastor picked me up. He, he got a notification on his phone, picked me up, and drove me up there, and he and he couldn't be. He said, I can't believe you're not fighting mad, and it's the pastor, great guy. He says, I can't believe you're not fighting mad. I said, No, I'm really not. And he said. He said, aren't you bothered? I said, well, yeah, I'm a little bothered. I'd like to get home. I have a busy schedule. I said, but you know, what am I going to do? What can I do? Am I going to yell at the people at the, at the airport and they're going to arrest me? What am I going to do? They're going to not get me a taxi? And he says, well, don't want to spout off? I said, not really. And let me tell you something. That day turned out amazing because I was able to fly with the uh, solar eclipse. But what good does it do because we give somebody a piece of our mind? There's people that have given so much a piece of their mind, they have no minds left. Giving you somebody a peace of mind doesn't do anything except get you out of a saved mind. The enemy wants your mind. So maybe you say, well, you know, it's the way I was brought up. I was brought up Catholic. We fought about everything. Catholic Italian. We fought about everything. Every single thing was there. Somebody yelled at somebody about. I, I chose way back when. I'm not going to be like that. When my, mother, when my mother yelled, the animals in the neighborhood ran away. She had that shrill voice. Which is, I figured, I'm not going to live my life that way. Your mind can be controlled by you. Nobody else. No one can control your mind other than you. And so we have to take a discipline over our mind. And so as I continue tonight, and almost finish, fill your mind with God's word, and you'll have no room for Satan's lies. And it's the truth. It's Jesus tells us it. Um, and I'll be honest with you. I study the word quite a bit. Uh, every, every Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, I'm in my office studying the word. Six, seven, eight hours. Tonight when I go home, I'll study the word some more. I'll, write my, my, I'll do some more of my study for tomorrow. Uh, when tomorrow comes, I'll, do it, I'll, I'll preach on Thursday night. And then Friday and Saturday, I will study the word to preach on Sunday. And so it, but being in that all the time has affected my mind. I'm going to be real honest with you. It's affected my mind. It's messed me up in a really good way. You can't handle the Word of God without it messing you up in a good way. And so that's my job. That's what I do all the time. I do it every week. And every week I see more. I run out of my office and I'm all excited to tell Cheryl about what I found. And then I'll tell her, no, I can't tell you. You've got to wait. But uh, <laughs> it's the Word. It works. Trust me. So, spiritual warfare. And let the peace, soul harmony which comes from Christ, rule, act as an empire continually, in your heart, deciding and settling with finality all questions that arise in your mind. In, the peace, in that peaceful state and be thankful, appreciative, giving praise to God always. You are waging spiritual warfare when you give ra radical praise to God in the midst of your need and lack. When you're thankful for God for all he has done and he is doing, you are defeating the enemy. When you hold your peace in the midst of the storm, you are warning, warring with spiritual weapons. Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My own peace I now give and bequeath you. Stop allowing yourselves to be agitated and disturbed. Don't permit yourself to be fearful and intimidated and cowardly and unsettled. Jesus has given you peace. 
put it on and wear it everywhere you go. Two more things and I'm done. What to do when Satan attacks us? Be aware. He's going to attack you. He's going to attack you tomorrow. He's going to attack you outside tonight. God forbid somebody may go outside tonight and your battery may be dead in your car. And the first thing you're going to want to do is start to rant and rave. Let me tell you something. Don't. You know, it's going to be all right. Put on the armor of God, and you can look, read Ephesians for that. And create a circle of Christian support. If you have some problems mentally, and I'm not talking you're, you're mentally ill, I'm talking about with anxiety, with depression. If you, tell somebody, say, listen, pray with me, or when I get that place, let me call you up so you can give me an encouraging word. The other day I called somebody up, and I knew they were in bad shape, and uh, I called them up, and I just gave them an encouraging word. You know, just, they were on my heart, and I gave them encouragement. They, 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 were, they started crying and said, man, I feel so much better. You would not believe what an encouraging word does for people. And lastly, winning the battle. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but a mighty, I'll finish the whole statement, mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And this is not about arguments from others, the arguments that you give yourself, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So, would you bow your heads with me tonight for a moment? I love teaching the word. You know what I love better than teaching the word? Living it. And let me tell you something, sometimes it's tough. Sometimes you've got to face some people that are, that are nasty. How many of you have some, heads are bad, how many have some nasty people in your life? Man, hands going up, I have some nasty people in my life. Listen, we're on YouTube, I get so many different comments. We get great comments on YouTube, great, amazingly. But every now and then you get somebody that's going to say something mean and nasty to you and uh, try to ruin your day. I read the other day that there's atheistic groups that, that troll the internet looking for Christian groups like ours and that will have YouTube videos and they will post things purposely to try to slam the pastors. Well, you know what? Let them come. <laughs> it's not going to bother me. I'm going to still preach the word of God whether somebody agrees with me or not. So tonight where our heads are bowed, let me just pray for you. I want to pray for our minds. The mind is a battlefield. Know it. Understand it. You can blame Satan for everything you want to blame him for, but most of our problems come from us. Come from our own mind. And Father, tonight I thank you that you've given us the mind of Christ saved minds, minds of peace, Lord God. Lord, when turmoil comes in our life, and it does, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Sometimes, Lord, I don't want to be insensitive, sometimes people have so much that they, th they can't handle another single thing. Let us be reminiscent, Lord, of your word, that, Lord, you are the one that gives us that sound mind. Let us allow our eye gate, Lord, just to see your word, see your grace, Lord, your mercy. Bless us tonight, Lord God. Everything we do, everything, change us, Lord. Transform us from day to day, Lord God, that we can come into your image. Bless us tonight, Lord God. We pray for those sound, those sound uh, strong minds, Lord God, that we can war off anything the enemy sends us. Bless us now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.